as a SEAL, the gaps kill you. As a, as a, you know, as a, a bootstrap entrepreneur, the gaps kill you. So you can't ignore them. You gotta, you gotta try to fill them in. But at some point, you start to realize, like, man, all I see is gaps, 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 gaps everywhere. Yeah. And that, and that affects the way that you communicate to your teams. Because if all you see is gaps, then all you can talk to your teams about is what's missing and what isn't the way it should be, right? And pretty soon you realize like you're sucking all the mojo out of the environment. And so I've started to flip that and really start to focus more on the gots. My guest was a 14-year Navy SEAL and lieutenant. And after his service, he applied and attended Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Then in lieu of a traditional internship with private equity or venture capital, Instead, he taught himself how to sew and built his first product. And with $350,000 in private capital, he built TRX System into what's today a $60 million a year business with year-over-year growth projected to only take the products and category further. If you don't know what TRX is, you've probably seen them at your gym. They're the yellow straps hanging from a ceiling, monkey bars, or anchored against a wall. It's one of my favorite forms of training. Welcome to an all-new episode of Suiting Up Podcast a show where I dive into the stories of some of today's leading athletes, entrepreneurs, and entertainers. And I'm your host, Paul Rabel, pro lacrosse player, entrepreneur, and investor. Enjoy my conversation with one of my favorite CEOs, Randy Hetrick. At Rabel Companies, we're always hiring. That's our growth mindset. The challenge, though, is sourcing great candidates, and that's where technology is a really great fit for us. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you and us. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for. They identify the right people and candidates and invite them to apply for your job. These invitations have now revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through their site in just one day. And they don't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter. Ours, small, and much larger. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right. It's free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash cross. That's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash cross. ZipRecruiter.com. C-R-O-S-S-E. ZipRecruiter. It's the smartest way to hire. Sitting in the boss's offices. This is great. Nice to have you here, man. Yeah. Yeah. We've known each other now for five years, and there's so much I want to talk about. Um, But I want to start with your origin because I haven't heard it. Uh, from from the family roots level. And uh, when I look at what I'm trying to do as an aspiring entrepreneur and we look at building our businesses and such, I model a lot of our strategy and our values off of what you've done here at TRX. And I imagine, you know, for you, a lot of your influence has come from uh, even times before college and your time as a SEAL. So I'm, I'm curious to your upbringing and how that has influenced you specifically to start, and then we'll weave our way into your phenomenal story as, as an entrepreneur. Phenomenal is probably too kind by half, but I'll take it. Um, <laughs> I had a great, uh, if unconventional, upbringing. You know, my parents, uh, uh, I believe I was a, uh, what's the technical term, shotgun kid, and, uh, and, you know, wasn't exactly part of their plan, so I had really young parents hmm. who ended up splitting up after a couple of years together, and so I always had, I grew up with this kind of divided uh, family structure, right? And, and my dad, and they're really interesting, and they never could have stayed together, you know, in retrospect, because mm-hmm. totally different kinds of cats. And my yep. dad was really a product of his dad, who was a World War II, you know, vet and a, and a, a um, you know, had lived through the, the Depression and was just a very kind of hard guy. So my dad kind of inherited a bunch of that and really brought this kind of hard guy approach to my upbringing. Yep. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, my mom was a bleeding heart lib who, uh, yeah. who, who couldn't be, you know, nurturing and supportive enough, right? And was very much on the, you know, sort of every kid gets a trophy um, kind of approach. And it was interesting in that, you know, there, there are probably things in, in retrospect as a parent, I appreciate 
what they accomplished a lot more than I even did as a kid because I now see how hard it is, you know, to to be a great parent in the yep. midst of building a very busy, you know, life and business. Um, but that dichotomy between the hard ass and the the nurturer, I I think you know, living me today and and my dad, you know, imbued in me that kind of nothing's ever good enough, which has caused me to do a series of of you know pretty hard things, almost pathological, right? If you sort of my sports were wrestling and rowing, yeah, then the SEAL teams. Then to Stanford Business School, you know, right. not having had math for 30 years and having sucked at it when I did, and then into this crazy bootstrap entrepreneur life. And so, you know, I sort of am motivated by the challenge to prove something. Yep. I'm not exactly clear what it is, right? Yep. I'm hoping in my next 50 years I can lose some of that edge and start to... Uh, start to appreciate what is around me and what has been accomplished maybe more than I did in the first 50 years. Yeah. Well, but, uh, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm not a, a trained or licensed psychologist by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> uh, but I, I do know that the top CEOs and entrepreneurs are, are driven by that kind of, um, that, 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 the vision that you mentioned or having difficult to finding what that is, that competitive edge their work ethic is through the roof, but they also have to have these soft skills to motivate others, to be empathic, to be humble and be able to listen. And maybe that upbringing, that balance that you got. Yeah, I think so. Proved really well in the, in the long run. And, and I guess that the military background that came from your father's father kind of in, encouraged you to, to go from USC into the into Navy. You know, I had How, like, why my, did you make that jump? my junior year in, in college, I started, I just got this itch. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was, I remember I was reading about the Yanomamo Indian tribe in Brazil and they're, 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 it's bizarre as it sounds, right? This, this passage, their, their, their rite of passage from boyhood to manhood. And I got sort of interested in this idea that when well, we don't have one of those, you know, what, what, what demarks the, the passage from boyhood to manhood in, in, you know, American society, really nothing. You turn 18, you're still not old enough to drink, but you're old enough to deploy and kill people, which is yeah. an odd, you know, right. uh, juxtaposition <laughs> of rules. But but there really wasn't one. And I got interested in this idea of like, well, how do I test myself, you know, and how do I make that leap? And that got me looking at, at military service, you know, which I had kind of this family history of. And, uh, and then once I started looking, my sole selection criteria on which service was the one with the highest attrition during the selection process. Yep. So that was a part of, again, that that hunger and that competitive drive to be the best, but also really test yourself out. Yeah. And and going through BUDS, I would get, did, did you go through it first time? There's a lot of folks that I know that are, are current SEALs that have first or second or third or fourth, and in some cases, six or seven times through BUDS till they finally pass. Yeah. No, I... For me, it was it was a one shot deal. First time through. <laughs> yeah, first time through. Well, I mean, buds, buds is as as hilarious as buds is because it is one of the funniest places. That I you can't can imagine there's time. anything funny about but it being in there, dude. It's constantly funny. It's the same kind of stuff that you experience in the locker room, right? Right. Just constant haranguing between teammates in you know mostly good natured uh, banter. But yeah, I thought it was really funny, and for me. I mean, I hadn't been ROTC. I wasn't, you know, I owed nothing to the military. So it was this very much a voluntary um, adventure. Yeah. And Bud's was all that and and then some. But it wasn't the kind of place you want to hang out, right? Any extra time longer than you had to because it's a pretty punishing environment. Um, Yeah. That humor that you talk about that we have in the locker room that you had during Bud's with your teammates there. You know, I, we often qualify it as the ability to be to, to have self-deprecating humor and how valuable that can be. And when you look at whether it's the hiring process or selection of friends, and and like a core characteristic for me is if if you're not able to make fun of yourself or have a laugh at yourself or be light in the circumstance that's in front of you, as hard as it is, then there's likely some really deep-rooted insecurities, and there's some edges, and there's some problems that might be in front of you. Um, and, and I've just noticed in, in professional sports, those that have that sense of humor can go much further along. And then that, that contrast to like, well, you know, we're supposed to be serious all the time. Yeah. No, I think that's actually a really interesting observation because I hadn't thought of it in exactly 
those terms. But when you find somebody who is a high performance cat and can't laugh at him or herself, there is something else going on that probably is going to have an adverse outcome Mm -hmm. down the line. And if you look at like military history, right, military units, people from the outside have this impression that military units are these very almost like, you know, um, I don't know, like a bunch of machines, right? Right. And a bunch of rules and a bunch... Really, military units are hilarious organizations. And you don't know it till you're inside. Because when you look from the outside, they do have this veneer of, you know, oh-so-seriousness. But but it's gallows humor, right? It's that black humor that, that allows you... To uh, you know, as this as this uh, this old chief once said to me, he said, you know, uh, Lieutenant, anybody, you know, can can uh, can smile when you're on a roll, but it takes a really cool character to party on when the chips are down. That's exactly right, and and that was that was like great advice, right? Yeah, because especially when you're losing or to tie in sports again at halftime, you're performing really poorly and there's a, an upset looming and everyone just digs in deeper and gets more tense rather than just say everyone relax. And sometimes the easiest way to relax is to get someone to laugh. Start laughing. I remember my freshman year, we were in the final four against Virginia. This was ages ago now. And, uh, and we were the number one team in the country. Hopkins had been the number one team in the country leading into the final four for the previous four straight years. I didn't know much of it. I was a freshman, so I was walking on to it pretty high-spirited. Hey, we're 15-0. We and 0. We had beaten Virginia earlier in the year, and we were playing them in the Final Four, and we had a slow start. They made this crazy comeback and took, took the lead by a goal. This tornado came in, or seemingly felt like, so we had to take a 45-minute break. At Lincoln Financial, there was 50,000 people there. We head in the locker room. There's four minutes left in the game. Here we go. Virginia took the lead, and Hopkins is going gonna, is gonna to bow out again. Greg Raymond, who was a fifth-year senior at the time, turns on some, like, 60s jazz in the locker room and starts dancing. Everyone is sitting there kind of head in hands. I know the coaching staff and Coach Petro talked about it on this podcast, too. It was like, what are we going to do to get these guys going? And he just starts dancing. And it was that uh, kind of foresight into, hey, I'm a fifth-year senior. I've been a part of the four previous teams that have bowed out, and let's try something different. And that worked. We came out. Kyle Harrison scores a goal right out of the right out of the break, and we ended up going into overtime and winning in overtime. But I uh, I really like where this is going because it, it it shows that other side that often doesn't get talked about. Yeah. Well, and and when you're stressed, right, the last thing you need is reinforcement of that stress. Mm. You sometimes guys need to be stressed if they're not stressed, right? An environment that calls for that. But when you're already stressed you don't need more stress heaped upon that. What you need is the antidote to that, right? Which is usually humor. Hmm. And it, and I found, you know, I mean, you, I can remember literally going out the back of, you know, a C5 at 30,000 feet in the black and night loaded up like a small Volkswagen with a, you know, a mask on oxygen that's fogging up. So, you know, there you go out, getting ready to go out the back of the plane and without fail, somebody right to your right or your left, would be cutting up in some way with some joke, right? Like, and, and that was all it generally took to like snap guys out of like, okay, all right, yeah, that's right. Back to my procedures. Yeah. You know, this is what I love to do. This is all going to be okay. And out you go. And I think that, uh, you know, the higher the pressure and the higher the stress, the more that an organization benefits from folks within it who can keep a sense of humor. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd ask you to give some advice to some of the younger coaches in sports and sport agnostic. And, and again, we were talking about your son, Harry, who's a top recruit in the country in lacrosse. And he goes through all these tournaments and, and plays for different club teams. And I think in sports and, and uh, you know, you're, you're obviously competing at the highest level as a SEAL. And then now as an entrepreneur, you learn that, that differentiator. But at, a, at an earlier stage – that the lessons aren't that. And it's like, push, push, push harder, push harder. And you get critiqued on the sideline when you are, when you made the mistake and you already know you made the mistake. And then you probably get critiqued again at halftime. And then after the game, if you don't win. So how would you kind of present this to the young coaches everywhere that struggle with that? Because empathy for these guys and gals that are coaching is like, you're not on the field. So it's difficult to, uh, you know, I, I got to imagine as a coach, which I'm not one, is just to, to manage a game and not be in control, but try to, to the extent that you can in motivating the players. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the you know, I would say the I've never been a coach either on the on the level that you're talking about, but as a you know as a squadron commander over a you know counter terror squadron, you've got a bunch of really really high caliber players, right? Different game, higher stakes, yeah. uh, <laughs> but really talented guys, really smart, and so you know, but things don't always go the way you, you want them to, and. And so it's very similar to, to coaching, I mm-hmm. think, a, a high-level sporting team. And one of the things that I, I just learned, I learned from coming up inside the organization and looking at the leaders that resonated the most with me, you know, whose styles resonated for me, um, all of them had this sense of perspective. And, they, and that perspective allowed them to keep a sense of humor. Hmm. And then that sense of humor allowed them to communicate Right with the players, if you will, the the members of you know the various operational units to which I belong, to communicate in a really effective way that wasn't, you know, it wasn't giving a guy a pass for a crappy performance or a loss of focus, but it also wasn't hammering guys, you know, when they're trying hard but the results aren't coming because mm-hmm. that's that's not a great approach either, right? It was that sort of threading the needle between and using humor as a way to connect with the guys, get a message across and sort of keep the fun in whatever we may be doing. And to me, that's like, you know, Hey, all of us are motivated by fun at some level. Right. And people perceive fun differently, but keeping the fun in a coaching moment is going to allow you to be so much more effective in connecting with that kid, especially when we're talking kids. Um, then, you know, the hard style approach all the time where, you know, guys tend to shut down. Yep. You know, and they, the, your message just starts to go into the white noise category rather than really hitting home and really having the guy hear you. Yeah, and 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 then to jump into your story, which when we're talking about seals, the first thing we tend to think about outside of their their sheer resilience and and uh, their ability to you know, go out and take on any mission, no matter the size and protect our country is the fitness. And I mentioned buds and, and such. And, and, uh, when you were in seal team one and as a captain, uh, one of your side initiatives was making sure that the, that the team was fit and, and you had to use the available resources and kind of leading into the story as, as what then became TRX was you had these, uh, blue jiu-jitsu belts and you tied them together and, and like, when I think about this story that you've told a number of times, and, and I'll have you share it from your perspective, it's much better than mine. Wrestler and rower, you always understood at least the significance of some type of resistance training and using the back muscles properly and probably using the core properly more so than I think many of us who grow up just in traditional team sports like basketball and football, or even just say football, it's, it's more about the bench press and the squat. Mm-hmm. So perhaps that had a little bit to do with it as well. But talk about that story of innovation and, and how you found it first as, as a beneficial form of training and ultimately functional training. Yeah, well, coming up through those sports, those two sports in particular have big body weight traditions, right? Whereas I would say, you know, football has more of a powerlifting tradition behind yeah. it. And so I had always been this kind of body weight training guy all the all the classical calisthenics and you know wrestlers do tons of rope climbs and all that so i kind of had that you know behavior already built into what how i like to train and i was uh i was actually at um uh, deployed overseas on an operation and a i had i had accidentally deployed with my jujitsu belt in my bag and i was trying to figure out how to how to train the climbing muscles right it was just a Pure problem solution, you know, calculus going yep. on, and and we were in a we we're in a warehouse um, where there wasn't anything to hang off, and I had you know wadded up my flight suit and grabbed this jujitsu belt that was underneath it by accident, and I was sitting there staring at this bathroom door inside this warehouse, and I thought, you know, I wonder if I went and tied a knot in the end of this belt and put it over that door, shut the door. And then kind of leaned back against it, I'd have to, you know, lift my own butt up, you know, away from gravity. Mm-hmm. And I weighed, you know, 100 or 215, something like that at the time. I'm like, eh, that's a fair amount of weight. 
And so I went over and it was literally what today we call functional training. Yep. It was, it was creating this movement and loading it, right. And then repeating it that translated directly into the activity that I wanted to do, which was climb a caving ladder up the side of a ship. Yep. And that, you know, that was kind of the, that was that sort of, uh, you know, voila moment, the yep. spark of inspiration that, that, uh, caused me to create the TRX. And did you think at that time, and this is pre GSB, did you think at that time, like, huh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll build this product out or think more critically around it, invent something and start a business? Never. Like when I, when I, so I was at the special missions unit when this happened and I was, you know, deep into my career and I just thought it was fun that I had made this harness that guys liked. And I had another buddy who was a parachute rigger who out in the parachute loft and he liked beer. And so he would make, you know, <laughs> what, what, what he affectionately called my gizmo. He'd, he'd rip these out for guys in exchange for a case of beer. And it just sort of slowly started to percolate, you know, right. first across my squadron. And then it kind of, as guys moved between the squad, squadrons, it, it just got this little cult following. Hmm. And it wasn't, no, it wasn't until I was at business school and I had a buddy who had been a running back there who got us invited to go out and train in the athlete training center. And I would take my straps out, right? Stanford's got a pretty good, uh, pretty good training center yep. for their athletes. But I'd go out, hook up my straps to, you know, to a uh, to a squat rack, and start ripping out these big workouts. And over time, all the coaches started coming over. You know, they'd be in there with their team. They'd come over and be like, "Dude, tell me about this thing. What right. is this?" And ten minutes later, they'd be asking me, "Hey, could you make could you make some of these for my squad?" Yeah, and you know, you're at business school, you got a bunch of guys who know what's up in terms of physical training saying this thing is cool. Maybe it is, right? So I used the second year there as an incubator yep. uh, for what would become TRX. Yeah, and that was like your internship where most people go and work for a private equity or venture right, fund. exactly. And you said, hey, I'm going to start this company. Yeah, you, you can imagine how happy my wife was when I, <laughs> I, instead of taking this cushy, you know, 10 grand a month internship at, <laughs> at Bain or whatever, I said, no, 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 I'm going to go buy a 35-year-old sewing machine, sit in my garage and try to... Uh, to take this Cro-Magnon prototype, right, which is hanging right there, right. Uh, and turn it into, you know, the the straps that you that you see uh, that you see hanging in front of us here. And so, yeah, I took that summer and just you know sewed uh, mostly, and then flew over and tried to find a, somebody in in Hong Kong to make these things for me, and uh, and then used the second year as this incubator where all my classmates got suckered into, uh, you know. To, to doing different projects with me. Yep. Marketing plan, you know, the yep. strategy, the finance plan, all of that stuff was all worked out as a second year student. Here's to sleeping well on a great mattress and our show sponsor, Mattress Firm. Everyone should know by now, if you listen to this podcast, how important recovery is through sleep. Everyone should also know how important stretching is before an event. And so does Mattress Firm except they're stretching your dollar. Your budget stretches further when you're shopping at America's neighborhood mattress store where it's an easy win and you play make it, take it with every night's rest. They're the head coaches when it comes to mattress expertise, but know this, they are more than mattress experts. They have a game plan that helps you transform your mattress into a bed from adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and even bedroom decor. They have you literally and figuratively covered up and ready for the best night of your life. That's real. Go to mattressfirm.com forward slash podcast to see what deals are happening. They're mega and are changing as often as I read these ads. One constant, though, that you can bet on is they offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low-price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. You cannot beat it. Score big with a perfect bed. Head to mattressfirm.com forward slash podcast to get the play-by-play on how you can monumentally improve your sleep. Today, tonight, and tomorrow. You know, we hear a lot of conversation from very successful CEOs and entrepreneurs that didn't go to business school um, that say, ah, you know, I, I got my MBA on the streets, right? And and then there's the other side of, of the fast track to success, whether it's in investing or, or, or on the venture or private equity side or even angel then to operating where do you land uh, with your experience at GSB, arguably the best business school in the world, 
um, in, in helping you build this specific product and, and how valuable is it? What would your advice be to those? I feel like there are many peers of mine that are trying to make that decision. Do I invest in business school? Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, I was coming. I mean, remember, I was older, Paul. I came across, you know, into my second chapter at 36. How long were you a SEAL for? 14 years. So so I felt like I really needed um, the opportunity to learn a new vocabulary mm-hmm. and kind of to pivot, right, to – I'd been I'd been a commando for a long time, and if I was going to become something different, I felt like I needed um, an experience that would help me make that transition and learn some new skills. Mostly, just learn the vocabulary because the reality is, at business school, you know, you learn just enough to become dangerous to yourself and everybody around you, right? <laughs> but but I I did make some really great contacts uh, in both in my class and then with you know, the faculty at Stanford, and they're great at helping students pursue, you know, subsequent ventures. Um, and I, I needed it. I, I needed the, the, I didn't have any skills in finance. I didn't have, you know, I had never opened an Excel spreadsheet before I showed up at business school. So, yeah. so I needed that, but I'm a subscriber of the philosophy that, yeah, you'll learn more in your first, you know, three or four years as an entrepreneur than you learned, you know, in your MBA program and by yeah. far more. Right. And, and then those lessons just mount every subsequent year. So I don't think you necessarily need a, a formal MBA for sure. Uh, if you've got, you know, some math skills, if you surround yourself by people who, you know, fill in some of the gaps yep. that, that you have in your own uh, armor, but it's definitely helpful. Yeah, and, and you filed for the right patents and trademarks, and then you had to raise money, which I would imagine that entry point of coming through GSB really helped you organizationally and from a strategic standpoint say, hey, I need to knock these things out. Did that make it easier? How long did it take for you to close that first round of financing? It was primarily friends and family, and then the patent and trademark process before you said, okay, let's roll this business out, or were you kind of doing it all simultaneously? Well, I mean, and the point you make is, is a great one about business school, right? If you're, you want to go raise money to start something, that's all about de-risking for the investor, right? Convincing the investor that this is a relatively, uh, you know, de-risked venture because nobody mm-hmm. wants to put money into something they think may fail. So one of the ways that you that you can show that you are a good bet is to have a decent MBA from a decent school, mm-hmm. right? And that became really important in the fundraising, no question. Yep. And it also became back to that sort of learning of vocabulary. I wouldn't have understood intellectual property right. at all had I not had a class in it at Stanford. Yep. I wouldn't have really understood sort of the, the, the strategy of building a brand and making sure that your operational strategy and your brand strategy are aligned. Yep had I not been introduced to that concept at Stanford. So, you know, I, I think, uh, I think it's definitely worth doing. I, I, I certainly see that there are many, many, many examples of guys who've built amazing businesses without MBAs. So, you know, if, if you're not in a position to go get one, don't despair. Yeah. And and you've said now that if you build this business in 2018, your go-to-market strategy would have been much different than it was then. And that probably has to do with your experience, but also more so new media, um, you know, understanding the, 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 the training climate even. I mean, when we're talking in 2005 when you incorporated, uh, that was when I was a freshman in college. So leading up to that in high school, I hardly lifted weights, much less like got really thoughtful around the type of training I was doing. Now there are younger kids that are training with S&Cs and physical therapists and you have all this different you know, assortment of products that are in front of you and training methodologies. So it's much more complex. You know, I definitely benefited from this kind of rise of functional training. Yep. People were, I would say, throughout the 80s and 90s, really up up to the 90s and really into the early 2000s. You know, traditional training uh, methodologies were basically you either went out and did speed work or you went and did endurance running or you lifted weights. Yep. Right? And it was kind of, that was it. That was it. And, the thing that's been interesting about this kind of rise of functional training, I think it was influenced largely by physical therapists who were helping people rehab initially and then found that that's actually a great practice for, you know, it's almost like 
brushing your teeth, right? You don't brush your teeth because you want your teeth to get big. Yeah. You brush your teeth so they don't fall out of your head. Yeah. And, like and so this idea of, all right, well, maybe we do need to do some, use some smaller tools and some bigger movements, right? Which is a, which is a fundamentally different way. It used to be big tools, small movements, yep. right? Well, this idea of small tools with big movements that tie everything together, that suddenly got some traction and then people got results out of that approach. They tend, functional training movements tend to be, as you, you know, because you employ a ton of them, big, satisfying sort of experiences, right? Mm-hmm. When you're out there working hard and you're doing these big movements that tie everything together, it feels great and the results are great. Now, you still need to do your power work, right? Yep. Depending on, on what, your, what your training objectives are, you still need to do your speed work. So we've never been anybody who came in and said, oh, stop what you're doing. We came in with a suspension trainer and said, hey, this thing's going to help you do everything you do better. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is you do is fine. We want to be part of it, right? And we'll try to show you or try to figure out with you how this can help tie your pieces together yep. in a way that's better. So that, that rise of functional training was lucky uh, for me because we ended up being on the forefront of it and we benefited from you know a rising tide. Uh, of awareness. Well, you were the thought leaders there, but then, you know, what, what we notice and then the products and services that we offer is, is similar to you. And you and I have had this conversation before behind closed doors is like, what you just said makes a ton of sense. We've had a dinner and talked about it and sat with Harry and his friends and the, you know, what the younger kids look at and wanting to bench press as much as they can and squat and particularly because of the NFL draft and the publicity that gets. But storytelling, you're only often given a couple of lines on a, on a product box or a package. You're only given a quick six-second hit. And how do you explain or how, what are maybe some of the challenges or how you guys were effective in your marketing approach, especially because you guys didn't really spend much? Well, we didn't have any to spend, right? That, <laughs> so that made that decision easy. Um, but uh, So were you like, what the hell are we going to do? Yeah. Well, you know what I started? I, I – I, I always had this, this I guess, a knack for, you know, taking, maybe it's because I think in simple terms, taking sort of more complex messages and distilling them down to, to bite-sized nuggets that people can chew on and, you know, think taste okay. And one of them was this idea of, like, people would ask me, hey, well, these straps, so are they like my machine? And I started saying, hey, screw the machine. Make your body your machine. Mm-hmm. And that was where, you know, our main marketing tagline came from was literally that provocation that I would give to people. And, and it kind of caught on. People were like, oh, that's cool. Make my body my machine. That's interesting. And, and, and it really is what we then built on. It was this idea that, hey, you start with movements, human movements, yep. right? Arguably, there's seven or eight most important ones, right? The squat, the lunge, the hinge, the rotate, push, pull, plank. Uh, we started focusing on those movements and really trying to help people generate clean movement patterns. Then you start to load or challenge them, right? Challenge them either by increasing the load or increasing the tempo or decreasing the rest or destabilizing the move. But everything going back to this idea that like, hey, if you can't have a nice clean squat, you got no business, you know, packing a bunch of weight on your back and right. making it less clean. Yeah. So, Right, so so we would start by unloading, using the straps to actually unload some weight, set the posture, and then work on the mobility in the hips, knees, and ankles, yep. and activate the upper back, right, so that you could actually knock out a squat. All right, now we can talk about how to challenge it from there, right? Whether we put some load on your back or whether we have you move into you know unilateral mode, do single leg squats. There's lots of different ways to make something harder, but the whole premise that we started with was, hey. We want people to start with nice, clean movements and then give them some tools to challenge those movements. And right. that, that's basically been the, the thesis of TRX. Yep. And then the company took off. You were with basically every pro sports team and pro athletes were using them. And that was often – that was led by Drew Brees who – from a, another guest from the show. And, and you had connected with me – me with him graciously uh, in that rotator cuff injury that he had, which – usually ends a quarterback's career in a throwing arm. And his trainer at the time in San Diego was using the straps. He got Drew on them. Drew gets in touch with you and just says, hey, Randy, this is uh, 
this has saved my career and I'm using them all the time. You guys form a, a relationship, then that becomes a, a real marketing effort that's authentic and natural to the brand. You're in over 25,000 clubs. You have a B2B business. You're, you're doing 2,000 courses a year. Well, so Drew was a hugely important guy in our business and it was, it was the coolest and most organic relationship ever. It was very much what I was just talking about with functional training, right? Mm -hmm. Drew met us when he had torn his rotator cuff in his throwing shoulder. And, you know, Todd Durkin, who was his performance coach at the time, was a fan of the straps, an early adopter, and started using them to mobilize, right? Then stabilize, then strengthen, and then add power, right? That sort of that recovery curve. Um, and Drew liked them and got hooked and decided, well, wait a minute, this isn't just I'm not just going to use this in my rehab tool. I'm going to I'm going to continue this in my in my life. And then you know he and I built a a, a friendship. Uh, and he obviously had a pretty historic you know yeah. run up uh, over the next few years after that. And that was really helpful because you're as an entrepreneur, right? Your number one enemy early on is obscurity, and you got to have somebody help you help you get up above the obscurity layer so people can see you mm -hmm. and start to go, hey, that's kind of a cool thing. And, um, and so he, you know, he became a, an important part of our story and really helped us break out. I do think, uh, there are a lot of young athletes that listen and parents and coaches, all which qualify for this type of training. And, uh, when we hear mobilize, stabilize and strengthen, let's start with the first one, mobilize how specifically first, what does that mean? For, for an athlete to try and mobilize or even just a fitness goer? What are they trying to do? Well, I will caveat this by saying, you know, I am not a kinesiologist uh, and I don't have a PhD in anything. So having said that, right, we get <laughs> You're to humble see, because you know this very well. We Go get ahead. to see a lot of athletes yep. and we get to see, a, you know, a lot of, of regular folks just mm. trying to increase their functionality in their life. And, you know, so mobilizing literally – uh, just means maximizing your range of motion yep. through any given movement. And, and for typically with injuries, it, they, they're caused because of lack of mobility. So you, you push yourself in a direction where your body's not used to and you have weight to it in some cases. Other yep. cases, it's, it's trauma and there's some type of um, contact. Uh, but your, your theory around mobilizing, getting that better range of motion is better from an injury prevention standpoint and rehabilitation standpoint, right? Correct. And And – Prehabilitation, yes. right? I mean, increasing dur most most injuries, and this is a generalization, but but it's I, I don't think it's too far wrong. Most injuries happen at or near the end range of motion, which is where you're delevered, right? Mm -hmm. You have the least leverage at the end range of motion, so you need strength at that end range of motion to avoid injury. Yep. And uh, and I'm sure you see it in lacrosse, right? Like if you get checked when you are at your at your most deleveraged position that's the most likely to cause an injury not when you're in your correct you know in the middle of your of your shot for it's instance. the after your shot or after right at the other end of the someone range gets hit and you see the injuries yeah take so place. you've got two ends mm -hmm. of of a of a movement right and at either end you need to be strong and stable because if you take you know a a, a, a force at the end of that motion that's where you're most likely to get hurt so the idea of just you know, creating that nice, clean, full range of motion and then being strong at both ends endpoints yep. is is pretty powerful. And when you get hurt, the first thing that happens is your body goes to protect the injury by decreasing the range of motion, right? It doesn't want you to move because it needs to heal. So then as you recover, you have to start by reintroducing that range of motion. And that's what PTs always do. They start with no resistance, yep. right? It's just initially Movement. passive range of motion where they are ambulating, you know, the, the, the appendage and then active where you're doing it yourself. And then they stabilize it generally. Right. And then they start to strengthen it. Yep. And, and TRX has thousands of hours of, of videos uh, online where you can look at the different types of of workouts where you can build mobility. It's not just a rowing strap where most people see it that way, but there are so many different muscle groups that I've learned to work out and kind of going into that mobilization theory is, is like if you focus on just your shoulders or just your upper body or just your legs, you're not fully understanding that, that mobilizing and kind of that, that, uh, that the very end of the spectrum, beginning of the spectrum where we're most prone to injury, 
when I look at an athlete that injures, call it his right hip or her left knee, it's often not because of the actual knee's movement. It's because of a lack of mobility in the right ankle or the left ankle or lack of mobility in their hips or weakness in their core, um, you know, not great rotation around their upper body. And so you have to have this holistic approach, whether you're in CrossFit or whether you're the next um, you know, marathon runner or training for your team sport at the next level is it, it is a, a game of patience. You have to be thoughtful. You have to approach each muscle group and realize that mobility. Now, once you get that, you mentioned stability and stabilization. What do you do specifically on the straps to encourage that and maybe start with what that means? Well, I mean, we, so, so I have two, two guys on my team. I have a great team, but but two guys, Frazier Quelch and Chris Frankel, were both my. Uh, Frazier has been with me since almost since the very beginning, and he was the initial head of training. And then Chris Frankel, who is our our, uh, our exercise physiologist and uh, our PhD, who brings sort of the higher level of of analysis to the problems. Both those guys really focused on the body as a system. And, and it's a, it's an easy thing to say. It's harder to get your head around. Right. But this idea of, you know, training parts of a body, which you may want to do if you're a bodybuilder and you're looking for, you know, hypertrophy muscles, uh, isn't a great approach for athletes. It's a much better approach for athletes to train as a system because then all the, uh, you know, all the balancers and the, the connectors between the big muscles they evolve naturally. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not you know building a giant bicep, uh, and then trying to figure out well how do I get the connective tissues that make that that bicep function? How do I get them to grow? If if you train the whole system together, all that stuff happens naturally. So so that's kind of been our our approach, and that starts with the core. And and to your question of how do you create stability, a big point of of Chris Frankel's is hey we want to create. Uh, you know, the stability through the core so that we can create mobility through all the joints. Mm-hmm. And that's, the, that's like a central tenet of, of TRX. And, you know, there's a gazillion ways to build a strong plank on these straps yep. or with the rip trainer, right? It's all about building that strong core and then mobilizing at the joints. Yep. Then the other challenge then comes in, which are knockoffs. And uh, that's yeah. a challenge that you probably see today still. Man. But because going back to that GSB pedigree, you have patents and trademarks in place, but the challenge is you have to enforce them. Well, I mean, we the the scariest thing that ever happened to us, right, was we really kind of crested in 2014 and 2015, and that was this explosion of counterfeits and what debadged counterfeits. By that, I mean knockoffs that didn't carry our our brand on them. Some you know, of them did carry your oh, brand. Oh yeah, originally we had we had a huge counterfeiting problem in 2014 that was like Gucci or yeah. Louis Vuitton kind of counterfeiting. And we were able to beat that back because, you know, it's a felony and it it actually is easier to enforce. So these guys pivoted to this alternative approach which was they'd make a copy but they wouldn't put our trademark on it. Mm-hmm. So it's technically not a counterfeit, but it violates all your patents and then they'd put it on Amazon and the other online marketplaces at a fraction of your price and steal your customer right at the point of purchase, right? Mm-hmm. That that literally was the scariest thing that's happened to the business. And we ultimately, you know, filed a lot, picked the guys that were the worst offenders, filed a lawsuit against them. It made sure it was an American company. So we actually had some you know, some, uh, enforce enforcement international law is in, yeah, I mean, these, huh? all these shadowy knockoff guys out of China, it's very, very difficult to get them because mm. the Chinese government, you know, doesn't care yeah. and, and they don't, you know, they, they sort of marginally care about, about uh, intellectual property laws. So you have to really deny those guys, the marketplaces. But if you find, you know, these opportunists, uh, in, in the U S or in Europe, well, there you have some chances to actually enforce in a court. So we did. You know, we spent three years and you know a little over two million bucks yep. to bring uh, one case to trial, one unanimous uh, judgment with you know seven million in lost profits awarded to us. Which of course they immediately went out out of business. Yeah. But the verdict then became enforceable across the. Uh, across the industry and, and our, our sales, you know, we, we started cleaning up the marketplaces and, you know, last year we were up, uh, geez, we, we finished the year up 
trending 30% year over year. So that was a big, you know, that was one of those things that you never expect. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I've, I've started, I've started seeing becoming more philosophical about some of these things that you, you can be the, the victim of your own success, hmm. right? We built this brand that was really cool and that got really popular and, and, uh, was helping a lot of different people. Well, the opportunists came to the table and tried to eat our lunch. And for a few years, man, it, it took some work to, you know, to get through that and to get where we are today, which is, I am really following a, you know, a, a play out of Kevin Plank's playbook, which is that category creator, you know, KP yep. started with, you know, a couple, couple models of compression shirts. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I think all the way up to like eight or nine years into Under Armour, that's basically what they had was a very narrow assortment of compression shirts over the next, you know, 15, 16 years, they took that momentum and the brand loyalty that they had generated and started adding products laterally, right? And they moved into broader apparel assortment, then they moved into shoes. And then at the same time that you're deepening, you know, you're broadening your segments of consumers out there that you're going after. So we're doing the same thing. We, we have, you know, really broadened our stance. We are a full range training company now. And by that, I mean, we've got, you know, all the tools that you would train with in any kind of a functional training environment. You know, we don't make machines per se. That's not really our thing, but all of the, you know, the balls and the bands and the ropes and, you know, the rip trainer, the suspension trainer, and the ecosystem of education, training, and content that brings that experience to life for users, you know, from a pro like you to, you know, your average Joe who just wants to feel better and, you know, look a little better. If you were to have advice for let's start with the first a leader who is uh who's faced with in some cases in sports a team that's not performing what i see often and in, in talk to and this is i don't consider it as, as a as a champagne problem as, as some people do but why it's so difficult to repeat championships uh in sports and you see often a team that won flutter um what would be your advice to uh, maintaining success to a lot of these leaders out there man that's I mean, that, that's a hard, hard challenge. You know, if you get a little bit of success, it's essentially what you're doing. You right? get a little bit of success, anything else, anything else, but that tastes bad. Right. Yeah. And, and so you, you just got to develop the, I mean, I'm definitely at 52, right. I'm starting to, there are some, there are some benefits to, uh, you know, racking up the years and you start to see some patterns across different contexts. You know, I've gotten to have a, you know, full, a full, uh, 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 amateur career as an athlete, then a professional career as a SEAL, then a second professional career as an entrepreneur. And now I'm into, you know, running a high, still high growth, um, mid-sized company, you know, we'll be north of 60 million this year. And, um, which is, certainly isn't, isn't big, but it's, but it's, that's big, you know, it's, it's yeah. getting there, right. <laughs> it's starting to get up into the respectable territory. And, you know, I'm becoming more philosophical about, hey, there's, there are these cycles in life, right? And sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down, and you can't, you can't celebrate, you know, uh, too seriously when you're up, and you can't mourn too seriously when you're down because those, that's, that sign, you know, curve is going to happen, that yep. sine wave uh, throughout life. And so I would say to, you know, to coaches, one of the things that has been a powerful, um, uh, I guess, method for me is to try, I'm always trying to figure out how I can give opportunities to the members of my team, right? Mm -hmm. Because I could hog all those opportunities if, you know, if I was so inclined, but I'm, I'm actually on the opposite um, perspective. I really want to push my guys and gals out into the light and try to get them opportunities. And this extends out to our customers, right? We, we try, we, we built this business with trainers mm -hmm. and, you know, coaches and group fitness instructors and physical therapists. And we have always tried to focus on, you know, giving them tools and know-how that make them more successful with my team. Anytime I get a chance to push my people up onto the podium, I do that. And what ends up happening, right, is you're going to, you're still going to have, business that's not going to work sometimes the way you want it to stuff's going to happen that you just never, I mean, look at crock pot right now, right? Yeah. Classic crock pot. One of the iconic brands in America over the last 50 years, 
Well, who could have expected that they were going to be featured on This Is Us after the Super Bowl as, you know, the the cause of the tragedy that kills off the most beloved, you know, uh, character in, in the single most viewed show in the United States and that people would start throwing their crockpots in the trash cans and taking pictures of them and send them out on social. Like, that's the kind of thing you can't anticipate and you mm. can't plan for. So when, when it visits itself upon you, you need to have, you know, a set of core beliefs. You need to have a team that, that believes in the long run that isn't just constantly optimizing for the short run. And, you know, and you just got to kind of, again, party on while the chips are down and yeah. believe that the next hand that gets dealt is going to be a luckier one. Yeah, and it's, it sounds like that stoic mindset of of uh, just enjoying the journey and and believing that success, much like happiness, is more about the frequency of those positive experience, less the intensity of one. And I think we're often trying to live in that intensity, uh, whether it's a high or a low, and it becomes pervasive and almost, in some cases, permanent to our vision or our life or what we're experiencing, where we should be looking at the frequency of the different moments. And that sounds like what you're describing. Yeah, you know, I've started looking at, like, I I, I, I was, a while ago, I, I just noticed that I was really grinding a lot. Hmm. I just was grinding, and I was focused on everything that's missing, right? And over time, man, that sucks your mojo, and it makes you a less good leader. Hmm. And and I, I, I started, I realized that it was, it was being gap-focused. And gap focusing is important, right? As a seal, the gaps kill you. As a, as a, you know, as a, a bootstrap entrepreneur, the gaps kill you. So you can't ignore them. You gotta, you gotta try to fill them in. But at some point, you start to realize, like, man, all I see is gaps, 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 gaps everywhere. Yeah. And that, and that affects the way that you communicate to your teams because if all you see is gaps, then all you can talk to your teams about is what's missing and what isn't the way it should be, right? And pretty soon you realize like you're sucking all the mojo out of the environment. And so I've started to flip that and really start to focus more on the gots, right? Less on the gaps, more on the gots. The gaps are still there and and we need to kind of work toward improving them. But what I've found is as I've started celebrating more more of the things that we've got, uh, the message is a much more positive one and it, you know, it, it makes me happier personally as a leader. And I think it makes the folks that, that, you know, report to me happier because I'm not just constantly busting their humps about what's missing. Yeah. And, you know, I think that if you can, if you can do that, that flip and, you know, at least make sure that you're appreciating the gaps and the gots in, in equal measure, then as a coach, you're going to be much more effective at, at connecting with your players. Yeah, that, that's really great. I've, I've never heard it phrased that way. It resonates with me in sports and something that I've learned in, in sports psychology is, is the gaps for us are the losses and, and oftentimes like what's next, the next opponent, even the playoffs looming, or if we don't win a championship, it's a busted year. And oftentimes, even for the diehard athletes that win a championship, and I was one of them at one point, that I said it and I look back in my 2015 interview with the New York Lizards to say, you guys just won the championship. What are you going to do? I said, we're going to enjoy it for for tonight and we're going to get back after it. And it's like, look back at myself saying – you got to enjoy the the gods. You got to enjoy the wins. Yeah, cuz who think knows when that next championship's going to come along. That's right. right. Who knows if it ever will, but I think it's more likely if you're enjoying those winning moments. That's a really positive vibe for the culture of the team or the company. Uh, for you as 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 we look at the the evolution of Randy Hetrick and and all the stuff that you've shared with us today. What are some of the things that you'd like to share in, in way of resources? Like how are you becoming more meditative, more present? Are there favorite books? Are there email newsletters that you're subscribing to? Are there other things out there that, that you know, I could subscribe to and some of our listeners could? Hey, well, I've started, I've started paying a lot of attention to this awesome podcast called Suiting Up. You may have heard of it. <laughs> I find all kinds of inspiration in that one, man. That wasn't a self setup. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I do like the podcast. Thank you. But, but I, uh, you know, I, I would say that this is frankly one of the next journeys for me is to become 
more meditative. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of joked about this at the beginning of our chat today, right? This pathology of doing hard things perpetually, I can tell you from the other side of 50, you know, it does start to become uh, harder to, to keep approaching life that way because everything, cha- you know, your priorities change, your, your energy level changes. And there are so many things that you're trying to balance that if you're constantly defining yourself by, you know, what's the next hard thing I can do? I think there's a diminishing return curve on that. So part of what I'm trying to do in my next 50 years is become more meditative. And I'm actually, you know, I've, I've been looking at some of the stuff that you're talking about. I, I recently downloaded Headspace yep. because I saw you talking about it. Um, and so I'm, I'm, that's a journey for me, right? That's, that's part of my next challenge, if you will, is to become, I don't know, maybe a little less challenging to myself and a little bit more, you know, accepting and appreciative of, of what I've got. Yeah. Um, so as I do that, you know, there's a book that, that I, I recommend a lot, usually to folks who have, who have had some tragedy hit them, but somebody turned me on to it years ago. One of my very dear friends that I grew up with turned me on to this. And it, I don't even know if it's in print anymore, but it, it's called Chasing Daylight. And it was by the, uh, the CEO of KPMG, who at the peak of his career was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. Hmm. And he was an accountant. And so he went into this whole approach of how to maximize his remaining days, <laughs> right? And he did this whole analysis of how many perfect moments, uh, you know, a person can reasonably, without any disease, a normal person expects to have in their life. And and then he, you know, he, he worked this all out mathematically to here's how many days I have left. So let me see how I can turn those into the most perfect moments so that I have as many as I would have right. had I lived to be 90 years old in my previous state, Yeah, right? Amazing, amazing sort of mental framework and lens to to hold up and look through and see how you're doing in that category. And you know, and I think I could do better. So, so you know, I'm I that's I, I really like that book. Uh, for those who are who are just you know still in the phase of wanting to do hard stuff, one of my favorite books is is The Endurance by Alfred Lansing, and it's okay. the story of Shackleton's voyage to the South Pole. Man. If you ever want to, you ever want to like get a perspective that things could always be worse, right? And yet, they can be endured and survived, right? That's a great book because the stuff that that expedition went through is beyond. It's literally it's beyond fiction, yep. except it really happened. Yeah. Uh, so I like those, and you know, and I'm starting to introduce myself to podcasts yep. now and listen to them more. I. You had a great podcast with Guy Raz on how Guy, I built this NPR. Guy is yeah. is a is a, a really cool cat, and I really enjoyed talking to him. But I'm starting to to you know to try to take a bit more time and refocus it on you know enjoying uh, enjoying my kids, appreciating what I got here in the business, and uh, and I'm going to try to learn how to meditate because I keep hearing how much goodness there is in this. Yeah. And I know you're a big advocate. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. And, and all of what you've sa- shared and, and, uh, as we wrap, we're going to, you and I are going to do a, uh, a class at 12 o'clock to the public. And I think it's so unique. And I've always felt this way when I first stepped on campus here and in, in the heart of San Francisco, where your HQ is, is that you have your offices upstairs and then you have open workshops and classrooms downstairs and they sell out and people come through and they do full on 60 minute workouts and then you have staff specific workouts. So you get the full experience and it's not like, hey, you have to have an access card to experience TRX. Anyone can come in and and get a feel for the straps. And, and obviously we encourage uh, those that, that want to uh, get fully into functional training and, and learn more, go to our show notes and I'll have all the videos and stuff and, and links to, to get your straps as well. I've been using them uh, for probably – now, what, 12 to 14 years? I remember when we first talked, it was through Jay Dyer, who was my performance coach, still is, at Hopkins. And he had these straps uh, when I was at Johns Hopkins. And then when I graduated, and um, I believe I met Ryan Damon at the lacrosse convention. Yeah, absolutely. And I was like, hey, man, we got to talk because I use these things all the time. <laughs> and before I know it, I was out in San Francisco, and, and we began building our relationship. So I really appreciate you taking the time and, and uh, sharing your perspective, which is a big takeaway among a number of things that I'll, uh, 
that I'll share of, over blogs and stuff. It's it's always fascinating listening to you. Oh man, I I I love I love watching you. You're one of the smartest, like sharpest athletes I've ever met, and I love watching what you're doing with your brand. You know the 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 way that you are expanding your personal brand uh, and, and enabling it to scale, right, is is something that I think so many folks can learn from. And so I'm I'm thrilled to be uh, to be able to be uh, on the the esteemed yeah. among the esteemed group of <laughs> of cats that have done uh, podcasts with you. And if if any of your I'll do one quick plug if any of your athletes, your coaches, or your general followers. Uh, are interested in TRX. We have a, a summit this summer yes. that is in May and it's going to be in Austin, Texas. And it is a great time. This will be the biggest one we've ever done. And uh, so anybody who wants to take a weekend and come uh, learn some great stuff about functional training, uh, compete a little bit and have just a ton of fun. Take a look at the TRX training summit 2018. If you enjoyed Randy and my conversation as much as I did, please be sure to let us know. We can have that conversation over Twitter. My handle's at Paul Rabel. His is at Randy Hetrick. Be the first to listen to next week's episode as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversations with Randy's fellow entrepreneurs, Scott O'Neill, Scott Galloway, and Gary Vaynerchuk. All these episodes and many more are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. Also, please consider subscribing to our show. Lots of gratitude going your way for doing so. There's a shortcut to our show notes at suitingupodcast.com. And of course, a special shout out to our show's sponsors, Mattress Firm and ZipRecruiter. And remember, as Randy said, be humble, have a sense of humor, and show gratitude for this opportunity we have. Have a great week.